This episode of Best Girl Grip is sponsored by Share Her Journey, the Toronto International Film Festival's initiative to increase participation, skills and opportunities for women behind and in front of the camera. You can also join the movement at shareherjourney.org. Hello and welcome to Best Girl Grip the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. I hope you're all keeping well, and wherever you are in the world getting lots of vitamin D, be it in supplementary or actual sunshine form, she says, sitting in a bedroom editing a podcast episode. This is the fourth interview I recorded at the Toronto Film Festival in September, so it already feels like ages ago, but listening back to the recording reminded me just how compelling and commanding a presence Pamela is. Pamela B. Green has creative directed, produced and directed feature film main titles, motion graphics and award packages. She did the titles for a recent indie film I really loved called Blind Spotting, as well as Crown Heights and Fences, but if you look at her IMDb page you will be scrolling for a while. Her most recent project uh, is a documentary called Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blaché, and that's her feature directorial debut. So I'm actually going to read the intro to Pamela's film from when it screened at the London Film Festival in 2018, because I think it does a far better job of summarising what it's about than I can. There remains so much history to mine in the early years of cinema. Alice Guy Blaché is missing from most film histories and continues to be a little-known name outside of academic circles. To rescue her from oblivion, first-time director Pamela B. Green has embarked on a passionate mission to research Guy Blaché's life in order to highlight her importance as a cinematic pioneer. From her directing debut in 1896 at Parisian-based Galmont Studio and her role as head of film there, to the opening of her own studio and subsequent career in the US, Guy Blaché worked as a director, producer or writer on more than a thousand films. A visionary who mastered technique, pushed the boundaries of genres and wrote progressive narratives, her influence is such that she cannot be overlooked. This is a captivating, must-see profile of the mother of cinema. So thank you to Anna David for those words. And I've heard that the film is coming to UK cinemas uh, in early January next year. This episode actually follows on quite nicely from last week's interview with Elise McCabe, the director of narrative film at Kickstarter, because the journey of Pamela's film coming into the world more or less began with Kickstarter as well. We talk about why her grandmother was her mentor, how she learned how to be a filmmaker on the job, Hugh Hefner's role in the film, and pushing through days when she didn't feel like it was going to be completed. I think uh, this is a really honest and insightful interview, so thank you to Pamela for being open and to Tiff for making it happen. This is episode 34 of Best Girl Grip. So we were just talking actually earlier and you were saying that you didn't go to film school. Um, So what did you do at school? When I came back to the U.S., because I lived most of my life in Europe and in Israel, the high school level was um, higher than the college level in the U.S. Hmm. So when I came back to finish the last year and then go to college, I'd already learned everything in high school. So for somebody who is, you know, 19 years old, it's boring. And I wanted to... I felt that I wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur and businesswoman at the time. Um, even though I would paint and I would draw and I liked movies, I never thought about that. So I would constantly start my own companies, doing uh, websites and different things. And then 
I came up with an idea for a TV show, and it was kind of like the early American Idol, believe it or not. And um, But there was a host that lived online, and you can click on her clothes. It was very, very ahead of its time. Mm. And people did not know what to do with me when I decided to move to Los Angeles. And the idea of it, they said you should be an on-air host. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I ended up working on movie marketing and main title sequences. And that's kind of how I found my way into film and Mm. television. Um, I don't think there's always a direct way. A lot of people go to film school and then they just start making films. Everybody has a different journey, just Mm. like every film has its own journey. So for me... I learned how to, you know, make movie trailers and uh, graphics, and I learned the the craft of editing and movie posters and design, etc. Getting those jobs and and bringing in the work for those things, and learning the creativity on the job, mm. I guess, kind of like Alice in the way. Mm. Um, so it was self-taught. You you didn't have yes, those skills. Zero skills. And when you talk about titles, kind of. Talk about about that process and yes. what so you actually do there. I didn't realize that there were companies that did those. Mm. So when I came to California, there was a company called Kaleidoscope that did movie trailers and posters, and they uh, did the graphics for the trailers, and they said, oh, we do titles. And I was like, oh, what's that? And then they started talking about title sequences. So then I, I said, oh, I really like Panic Room, and I like this. And... I started to realize what it was, and I fell in love with that short uh, medium of being able to tell stories through that graphic medium, and Mm. it was so powerful because you could say so much visually. And as time went on, I expanded into, you know, shooting commercials and um, creating content and uh, looking for archival footage to create sequences that... Not ju- a title sequence is where the credits come on the screen and the background could either be the film or it could be designed mm. or something that has um, a lot of stock and archival footage in the background. So I fell in love with the medium, I fell in love with the design, and I fell in love with the archival research of stock footage and audio because, again, you have such a small amount of time. It's like between two and three minutes to do a sequence and you have all these things you want to put in there to be able to tell a story and in the way that's be natural. And how much creative freedom do you have in, in projects like that? Are you the one generating the ideas and then getting sign-off from the director? Or? It's very different. Sometimes a director will contact and say, I want it like this. I want something like Saul Bass. I love you know, Hitchcock's movie Vertigo, and I like that sequence, which mm-hmm. Mad Men has a little bit of that <laughs> as well. Or here's the script, why don't you read it and tell me what you think? Or sometimes I just present typography. It just really depends. Every project is different. But at the end of the day, it's not my job to be the creative in charge. My job is to visualize the director, filmmakers, producers, etc., that are bringing me on to visualize their ideas Mm -hmm. in the graphic medium in an abstract way and to convey what they're looking for. Do you have your own individual style? And if so, how would you kind of describe that? I'm a minimalist. I think less is more. Mm. So um, sometimes, even when I'm talking, I say things like very, very short. uh, And people are like, where's the rest? Because I feel like even in today's society and social media, you know, all the characters and everything, the attention span 
on Twitter and have taught us to just keep it short because you don't want to lose your audience. So Be Natural, my film actually, the editing style is uh, very fast. And I've been criticized for that because like, oh, if you could just stay on it longer and show more films. And well, my job is to tell this woman's story and to give you context and everything. And I did it in 103 minutes Mm. because I want you to walk away thinking about it and not fall asleep. And if you want, you can watch it again. You know, so my opinion is it's like when you go to a party, you come at the beginning, you meet everybody, et cetera, but you shouldn't ever overstay your welcome because bad things happen at an end of a party. (laughs) So for me, it's like I meet people, I hang out, friends, et cetera, and then I'm definitely not the last person to leave unless I'm helping somebody clean up. So I feel that's the same way <laughs> in in uh, in titles. It's just you want to do just enough that you gave the audience what they wanted and you held back enough so they want more. Um, you just referenced your film. Um, that's the untold story of... Um, Alice Guy Blaché. I wondered how you discovered that story um, and how you went about telling it. So in my my day job doing these sequences and I ended up working on the Oscars doing pieces and uh, the MTV Awards and VH1, after you accomplish all those things, it's great, but it becomes boring. And also I felt a little empty. I always feel that in anything that you do, you have to somewhat give back. And there was that absence for me in a way because I was working, 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 working and I was successful and you know most people would ha- be happy with that but for me I did feel a little empty so one day <laughs> um, there was a TV uh, segment about women pioneers in cinema and they talked about uh, Mary Pickford and Frances Marion and then Alice Kate Blaché showed up Mind you, I didn't even know. Like, I knew Mary Pickford as an actress, but I didn't know Frances Marion that I just mentioned to you as a writer. Mm. And it was astonishing because this is the first female filmmaker, director, writer, producer, and studio owner, a studio that she built. And Mm. she wrote, directed, or produced a 1,000 films. And my jaw dropped because as a woman growing up, I didn't even think that much about women directors. Um, you know, today you're so lucky that you're seeing so much more. I'm not that old, but I'm saying in my my lens, what I was looking at was E.T., Indiana Jones, Star Wars, etc., and of course Catherine Bigelow, Point Break. But I didn't really think about women directors. Definitely not a first female filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But that's just a trivia. Oh, that was the first female filmmaker, but that she had done so much. She had a 22-year career. It rewired my brain to think about that, and um, that was almost 10 years ago. I asked other people, because that's what you do, and they never heard of her, and uh, I just kept digging, and I was angry because I felt robbed in a way because I felt that if I knew about her and more women like that, maybe my thinking and what my maybe my confidence would have been a little bit different 
because it would be the norm, not something so obscure. Mm -hmm. So that anger and curiosity and wanting justice for her. And mind you, there were people that did a lot of work before me, but it was very academic and uh, very narrow. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to do anything small, unfortunately. It's a curse. But I decided that I was going to make sure that everybody in the world knew about her no matter what it took because she needed she could never leave early cinema but I could at least expand her audience and the masses whether you're a librarian an architect a plumber be nice to know about her because of not the fact that she's the first female filmmaker because she was a determined individual who ignored the obstacles and focused on the possibilities and paves the way for what we know as cinema today. And presumably your background in archival research and content creation, you felt like, well, you know, this is maybe a natural step into the world of filmmaking, or did it feel like quite a big leap to you? I was terrified. But my passion would constantly overcome that because um, when I decide I'm going to do something, I just, I do it. And I was discouraged the whole time by many male counterparts. For what reason? Well, what, do you, what do you know about documentaries? What do you know about writing? Do you know about this film? Do you know about that? How are you going to get the money? Da, 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 da. So I just got angrier. <laughs> because I looked at her and in a way I felt that she looked at me I, I believe this, as weird as it may sound, and said, you know what? I am definitely not the way I want to be portrayed. Can you help me? Hmm. And um, I felt that I had to do something about that for her. So what I knew or didn't know didn't matter because I was constantly in that I never did that, I never did that before. And it was like a re an old recording, like, what do you know about main titles? What do you know about trailers? What do you know about this? It was just the same thing. So I ignored it, but I never reacted to it as being upset as I did to this. And I think it was just something already brewing inside me that was going to probably explode anyway. <laughs> and where did you begin? Like, was it with the research? Did you, did you look for funding first? Like, how did it all come together? It's not a linear process. Mm especially with a documentary because there's so much to do. And I think, you know, at first I was a one-man band, one-woman band. They should change that phrase. You do, you do what you think you can do at the beginning. So who did what before? So I reached out to Joan Simon, who did an exhibition of her work at the Whitney Museum in New York, and she wrote a book. So that was one. Then I looked for, you know, any descendants. I watched any films that I could of hers that were available. That's kind of like the the basics, like the vanilla part, mm. the easy part. Then I went crazy. So <laughs> I wanted to see every single film, even though it wasn't available to the public. I wanted to find any new papers, any new descendants, um, anything new that wasn't done before. New material that I felt that I could find that was 100 plus years old that would change 
history pertaining to her. And uh, and I did. And presumably there was a wealth of footage and archive material. How did you go about? There wasn't okay. because there were her films. There were 135 films that existed, right. but they weren't all transferred. They weren't in a format, you know, working okay. at the the British Film Institute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I had funders pay to get those films transferred for the first time to be seen because I wanted to see it. Mm. The movie has the most films the world has ever seen of her work. That was one. But also, who talked about her? Like, looking at publications from the time. So, we're lucky we have the internet because all these publications either were burnt or didn't exist and it's thanks to, you know, archives like the British Film Institute and different places uh, around the world to digitize these things so we can actually uncover and take some of these uh, people out of the shadows. In this case, it's it's Alice Guy Blanchet. But there were many women directors that followed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hopefully through this film expanding, their stories can be told as well. Women have been there at the beginning, just like they've been in many other industries that just weren't documented or recorded. And I wanted um, future generations to know, because I was robbed, but for them to know, wow, this woman existed, she did all this stuff. You know, if she can do it, I can do it. And what's been the experience of bringing it to audiences like? Has it exceeded your expectation? It's been um, very overwhelming. It opened in Cannes last year, and it got a standing ovation. Then it went to Deauville. And uh, same thing there. Then it went to um, Telluride, and I was told it's the first time that they've seen a standing ovation for a historic documentary. Mm. Um, Then it went to the New York Film Festival and and London. I think they liked it. It is partially academic, and it has to be because we're correcting history, but people are inspired. If one person likes it in the audience, I'm happy because you don't know what that one person is going to go out and do. So it's 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, so I think it's, you know, okay. <laughs> um, but it, there's a problem with films about women, made by women, that are documentaries, that are educational. People think there's not a market for it, so they automatically nix it. And I think we're going to prove people wrong because it is being seen slowly around the world. It's going to be opening in the U.K. and France finally. And I was just at a panel today talking about a formula. There is no formula for filmmaking. It's constantly changing. But my formula was to ignore and um, keep pushing through and show people that if you look at things a little bit differently, yes, people will want to see this film and they will want to be part of changing history. Marketing and advertising is very important for films. And Mm. without social media, we'd be dead. And doing it as early as possible as well. Like, yes. Yeah. And you, you had multiple roles on this film, director, editor, writer, producer. Um, did they kind of overlap, or how did you balance all those different hats? I don't think I was really a director at the beginning. Maybe I was, I don't know. I still, believe it or not, don't believe that I directed this. It's very strange. Why? I don't know. I uh, The more we moved, I... I'm like, wow, how did that get edited? That's so strange how that worked out or that. Because it's um, it's how you feel about yourself. And I think women are just not encouraged. I feel I can produce anything. 
I could produce like the hell out of anybody. And I, and I think this began as that because I had to collect all the materials, put everything together, do the interviews, etc. I became more of a director when I and an editor when I started physically putting the story together. And this movie taught me how to be a filmmaker because you have all this material. Just because you have the material doesn't mean you've made a movie. Mm. You just collected a bunch of material. So how do you really thread the stories and try to do something that's emotionally connecting and doing right by history and doing right by the subject? It's a big responsibility when you do uh, a film about a person, mm. a real person, because it's, you don't want to mess it up at somebody's life. Did she have a family or an estate or anything like that? Uh, it's complicated. So that's a whole other thing. She had a great-great-granddaughter that contacted me out of nowhere on email saying mm. that she found out about the documentary and she didn't even know that much about her uh, great-grandmother. And now we're like besties. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so there's so many amazing roller coaster rides in this movie because you would think, oh, yes, it's just a boring documentary about a silent film director. Who cares? You know, it's narrated by Jodie Foster, whatever. No, it's not. Jodie Foster is amazing. Alice herself exists on camera, so that's amazing to hear her talk about the industry and herself. And I just come in to fill in the holes through my detective work. So, you know, one minute you could be watching parts of her biography as we're telling it and the next minute I'm in somebody's warehouse for some reason so um, I find that exciting I I like uh, finding new things it's like a treasure hunt it's like Indiana Jones it's got Pink Panther aspect as far as the visuals Thelbass it's uh, it's everything in this documentary sauce I don't know how did Jodie Foster come on board? well Joan Simon, we had met. She at the time was living in France, but she uh, was coming to L.A. And uh, we spoke, and we talked about, and she says, you're going to do this. And um, that gave me confidence, but also terrified me because I was like, oh, God, I really am going to do this. And we talked about Neuris, and she says, what about Jodie Foster? And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot. She speaks perfect French. So through... A mutual colleague, I was coincidentally supposed to work on one of her film titles, but then it didn't work out. But I asked if he could introduce me mm. to people that worked with her, and um, I reached out, and it was an immediate response. So that was kind of exciting. And that's what's great about this movie has a lot of parents, and they say success has many parents and failure is an or- orphan. This movie has the most amazing people that have come on board to shepherd the project and help me make it because it could have I mean they don't know me I've never made a documentary before Mm. but they heard the vision they saw not one piece of footage except for like an early trailer and she jumped on board same thing with Robert Redford you know so it shows you that people that know what they're doing and they're professionals they don't say, wow, if it's a good script, or wow, if it's, you know, they don't talk like that. Like, okay, let's do it. And that shows confidence in them, but also it's inspiring for me mm. 
because I'm like, wow, they're really going to do it. Okay, I got to really do a good job. Not that I wouldn't, yeah. but I feel like I have the support because yeah. they want to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely. Like the impetus is suddenly, yes. yeah, because you can get a lot of like, yeah, 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 we'll do this. And it, it, yeah. it doesn't if, ever happen. If somebody says, well, I need to see what it's going to look like before. Well, you know what? I don't want to work with you. <laughs> yeah. And has it given you the appetite to continue filmmaking? Um, like, and are you still balancing it with the film titles work? Well, I do need to make a living, which was I lost a lot making this because, I mean, it was impossible to do both. Mm. But I am doing something uh, next, but it's not a documentary. And I'm like, okay, I need a break. Mm-hmm. I'm still dealing with Alice a little bit, you know, be natural because I'm the different territories are being sold, etc. So she is not, we're not breaking up yet. <laughs> but yeah, it's such a long process. Like yes. people often don't realize that. Oh, yeah, they see it in their own country and they don't think about all the different. Yeah, territory deals that have to go on and you live with it for a very long time. And the universities and mm-hmm. the speaking because yeah. it's it's not just making a film, it's changing physical history. Mm. People are changing their curriculum, they're rewriting the books. I've created a lot of work for other people, gladly. <laughs> and yeah, you talk about uh, making a living and um, that the film titles work kind of being your bread and butter. But then how, how are you then getting funded when you have to work on the film? How is that working? You mean like like coming here, for example, and stuff like, like yeah, traveling? Yeah, exactly. Like who, who supports you? I pay you? for it. Yeah. Uh, my funders have been very generous. They paid for everything so, you know, I wouldn't have the debt. I take it step by step. You know, if my day job, I have a couple of other jobs and I could spare some money here and there, then I'll do it. If not, I can't go. So I offer to do a Skype, mm. you know, stuff like that because... I do need to make a living. Yes, it's uh, it's very challenging because most people that are filmmakers don't necessarily have a full time job that I'm aware of. I think I was a little unique that way that I had to, mm-hmm. but I I just had to make a living. So um, I didn't have any funding at the beginning, especially I was writing a lot of the checks myself. How do you prioritize your time when you've you're balancing all these different roles? It's a really good question. I get up super early. I get up like at 5.30. And I'll read emails, etc. Then I have to work out. And then before it's even 9 o'clock, I have my day sorted of everything I need to do for my day job. Mm -hmm. And then I have a call with the co-producer of the film. And then we talk on uh, FaceTime audio because she lives in London now, Kasama. She started with me as a research assistant and walked out a co-producer, and she's amazing. So then we map out what can get accomplished for the day between the two of us and other people. And then, yeah, it's a lot of juggling. So by the time 7, 8 o'clock comes around, I'm kind of dead. And then, you know, I'll do a little bit more work, and then I start over again. But it's it's two jobs, and now three because mm-hmm. I'm doing my new, my next project. Mm-hmm. And, and being new to this kind of line of work, did you have a support system of people that you could kind of rely upon to give you an honest opinion about what you were doing? Yes. So people that I interviewed in the film that I respected were people that I showed this stuff to. And then, again, people that were at the top of their game that just don't have an ego, that instead of trying to make it into something that they would do, they took what I had and made it better by giving me advice. So I try to do the same thing with other people because this is what you want to do, it's what you want to do. Okay, what can we do to make it better? Mm. So, But it's also 
I'm not going to lie. It's sitting there alone for a lot of hours by yourself, like looking at the screen, looking at the cut. Is this good enough? Is it going to work? And what do you do if you feel like, you know, your brain's gone like to mush and things are a bit stale? Do you just sort of get up and walk away and come back to it or with a fresh pair of eyes? Yeah, how do you kind of maintain that creativity? I don't. I cry about it. I unplug the drives and want to throw them out the window. I've wanted to give up completely and not do it anymore. But then you have the people like Joan Simon and Jill and Dreyfus, Jamie Wolf, all these women who not only helped with funding but were supportive of the project. You can do it. We'll help you, etc. So I think the best advice for anybody who would want to tackle anything um, like this is to make sure you have a good support system. And it shows up very quickly. I mean, you could see who the rotten tomatoes are, if you will, <laughs> pretty quickly when the work needs to be done. Because once you see the people not doing the work or they're negative, you just need to pull the plug and find people that are passionate and support your vision. Um, you were just on a panel here at TIFF about gender equality. Um, and I'm interested to know what equality in the, in the industry looks like to you and whether you've felt the impacts of this inequality. Well, I made this, I started this 10 years ago and I did the Kickstarter six years ago. When I did this Kickstarter six years ago, nobody, I mean, nobody was talking about this in my circles. I'm sure they were, but it was very silent. Mm. I think making this film has definitely opened people's eyes in the industry as well because she is being talked about and it's in the air, women directors, etc. So I think that's part of my contribution or Alice's, if you will, just by shining a light on her. It's still abysmal, you know, but I don't f agree with focusing on abysmal. I agree with focusing on opportunity. So many things are changing right now. So many streaming situations. Um, directors that are that have made bigger films are getting deals, etc. It is happening with female uh, filmmakers. I think the there's a big gap with like the independent ones that are just starting out, needing to be given a chance. So what I say is hire somebody, hire women, even if it's an assistant hire women in different roles so then they can have the experience and they can be part of the system and also find a way to fund your own projects there's so many funding opportunities on social media right now like there's Indiegogo, GoFundMe, Kickstarter I mean there's so many so if you're really 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 passionate about something and you have other people with you then you mm. should go out there and do it because I did it it wasn't easy I have, like, Twitteritis on my arm. <laughs> but I think, you know, I'm an example of something that can happen by making my own formula. What was the hardest part of bringing this film to fruition? Oof. Funding, editing, and licensing. The, all the different archives around the world and dealing with all the materials and bugging and begging. And there's some, there's some nasty people. But yeah, just making it into a film and the funding was, I guess, the hardest. What happens when you're done? Because you can't just count on your distributor to get it out there. Mm. You, there should be grants for uh, social media. 
grants for marketing and advertising because if your distributor can't afford it, go raise it yourself. You have to be responsible from the moment you decide to create it to completely getting it out there. And if you get a distributor that's on the same level as you pertaining to the film, great. But if not, then maybe self-distribute. There's so many ways. But you want to make sure you find people that are really, 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 really going to be passionate about your content. Because if they're not, then it's all your time and effort. And then what about all the people that helped you get there? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing for me. It's not even about my time. It's I have 3,840 Kickstarter donors. And then what about all the other donors and the donors and more and more? So it's my responsibility to make sure that this film does as best as it can to show them that it wasn't a waste, mm-hmm. which the most important thing is not financial in this situation. It would be nice. Uh, but it's to make sure she becomes known. And I think that's what's happening here now. So Running that campaign must have kind of been a nice experience of realizing that people cared about this story and wanted to bring it to life. Well, the Kickstarter, we almost didn't make it. It was, like, wow. really, really crazy. It was, I mean, I was on the floor crying at night. I'm like, I put all my money into this because it costs money to do the campaign. And I have no money left at my day job. I'm screwed. What am I going to do? And then um, I figured out this hashtag, inspiring women. And I started tweeting people that had that hashtag. Mm -hmm. And I found this one girl. And she knew somebody who thought it would be interesting for Upworthy. And then once that got, it got uploaded to that. And then it just exploded. So that is super lucky. Because it made the movie famous even though it wasn't made it was just a bunch of footage but then after that it got the attention of Gina Davis's institute and then Geraldine Dreyfus was an executive producer on the film right. and people started coming along a lot of women a lot of women, uh, women philanthropists and Hugh Hefner <laughs> random How? I know that's crazy well he's a big uh, cinephile okay and uh, he donated a large portion personally of his money before he died. Wow, that's incredible. And you mentioned you had an assistant that is now a co-producer, and is it important to you to kind of be paying it forward, basically, and giving opportunities to young women coming up in the industry or, or mentoring them or, you know, giving them advice in whatever way you can? Absolutely. I have three girls working with me right now, and uh, 20, 22, 23, young and I love it because they're learning and they're not out there getting me coffee. If they get coffee, we get it for all of us. And they're working and learning on the job. And I want them to learn all aspects because this way they can be versatile and have their magic uh, backpack when they go out into the world so they can have more tools. Do you think that's been the key to your success or the key to success in general? Because obviously you've got a lot of talents um, and skills that you can draw upon. So, you know, if ever something's not working, you have something else that you can kind of go to. I think having... I didn't have uh, mentors except for my grandmother. She was amazing. So I had to make my own tools. And um, I've made a lot of mistakes on this movie. So many And that's healthy because you have to fail to succeed. But um, definitely having all these different things from my day job 
uh, helped me on this for sure. Mm. What did your grandmother do? Why was she your mentor? She was a businesswoman who had done so many things in her life. She had sold uh, real estate buildings in New York. She uh, raced horses. She designed jewelry. Um, and uh, They were carried in Bergdorf Goodman. She was a painter. So she had the artistic aspect and entrepreneurial aspect, and she was a toughie. So um, we would talk about it all the time. She didn't believe that nobody knew about Alice, and she thought somebody else was already doing a documentary. Mm. She's like, how could it be that, you know, no, it's not being done? Are you sure? And I was like, yes. <laughs> uh, but she was not the typical grandmother that, you know, is going to make you cookies, which that's nice, too. But uh, she... I could talk to her about anything, business, relationships, etc. I'm like, oh, I'm going to make this deal. Do you think I'm asking for enough? Da, 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 da. So that was cool. And that was special because I think that's very unusual to have that kind of relationship when you're, you know, women doing deals, etc. and doing mm-hmm. all this stuff to have somebody to talk to about that. And do you think that was integral to giving you the self-belief to be able to kind of have the growth that you've had? Yes, for sure. Mm. Women filmmakers here at TIFF, is there anyone that stands out for you whose work you're particularly excited to see? I want to see, her name is Rue, I just met her. She made a film about a Bangladesh woman in a factory. Mm. And Aisling, oh, I hope I didn't kill her name. She was also on The, the Rest of Us is yes. her film. Yeah, I, I can't think of her full name. But Yes, I want to see that as well. They're very strong women making films that are women-centric, so I'm kind of excited to see it. But um, Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you yes. for running over. This has been amazing. Yes, and it will be coming to the UK before you know it very, very soon. I can't wait. I'm really excited to see it. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you like what you heard, leave me a review on iTunes or let me know on Twitter at Stone Cold Fox. That's Stone with an E, Cold with an E, and Fox with an X. Have a great week.